Okay, well today we're starting the second foundation in the foundation series. Uh, it's very fitting to have God, I think, as the first foundation, of course, the Trinity. And I think it's very fitting to have His Word as the second foundation. My wife asked me uh, uh, this earlier this week, so what, what are you teaching on this week? I said, the Bible. And she thought I was joking with her because she was looking for something more specific than that. I said, no, I'm really, I'm teaching on the Bible this week. So, and probably for the next few weeks too. Okay, let's turn to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 16 and 17. This is a scripture I would encourage you to memorize. I'm, I'm memorizing it myself. I think I have it by now. 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17 good scripture to have on hand when you're talking about this issue of the Bible. And today, uh, you know, we're going to go through a lot of different things about the Bible. Today is going to be, what is the Bible? Okay? So we're not going to, we're not going to have an exhaustive teaching on the Bible today. I mean, we're probably going to go through things like, um, how do we know the Bible is God's word, uh, the reliability and uniqueness of the Bible, uh, those kind of things. But today we're going to talk about what is the Bible? Okay? So let's course, if you want to know what something is, we look into it to see what it claims to be. Okay, so we're, today we're talking about what the Bible claims to be, um, and we're all believers here, so I'm not necessarily going to be trying to prove to you today that the, the Bible is, is God's Word, um, but maybe in a future teaching, uh, in the next couple of weeks or so, I'll, I'll give you some apologetical arguments on this issue. Okay, so let's read Second uh, Timothy. In fact, we'll start in verse 10 of chapter 3, just to give the context of what Paul is saying here. To Timothy, he's writing to Timothy now, who is one of his disciples. Um, <clears throat> and let's just see what he says here in verse 10. Uh, but you, Timothy, have carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. <clears throat> but you must continue in the, in the things which you have learned and been assured of, uh, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when uh, they, will not, they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Okay, we'll stop there. So we see that Paul uh, begins by saying, uh, talking about himself and what Timothy had seen in him. Um, you know, and I, I've been studying Romans 7 lately, and I hope to do a, a, a teaching video on that soon. Uh, and one of the things people will say about Romans 7 is that that's Paul in his present tense when he's writing Romans 7. Um, but if that's true, then he would be a hypocrite. 
uh, if you read through Romans 7, 14 through the end of Romans 7, he'd be a hypocrite if that was true about him. And we see here he's saying the opposite about his life. You, you've looked at my manner of life. You've carefully followed my manner of life and my doctrine. He's, he's saying, look, I, I've done what I've supposed to do. In fact, if you look at verse, if you were to read on in chapter 4 to verse 6, it's, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So he's saying, I've fought the good fight. Not I'm losing the fight every single day, but I've fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished the race. And a crown of righteousness is laid up for him, according to verse 8. So he's saying, you have followed my doctrine. And um, he's saying that in verse uh, 14, you know who you've learned these things from, referring back to himself. Okay? That Timothy has learned doctrine from him. He's learned these things from him. Has seen his afflictions. Um, and then verse 15 says, from your childhood, you have known the holy scriptures. Okay. And the Greek word for scriptures there is graphe, the same word is used every time for scriptures. And we we'll probably get our word graphic pencil from, okay. Graphe, okay, is a Greek word there. And we see that in verse 16, he says, all graphe, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now the word inspiration is actually two Greek words put together. God and pneuma, or breath, or spirit, put together. So inspiration literally means God breathed. Okay, so when you see the word inspiration, I want to give you an analogy of what I want you to think in your head. Okay, uh, some of you play musical instruments. Um, I want to refer to a, a instrument you blow through, like a trumpet or a flute, some kind of instrument like that. Now, when you breathe into that instrument, notes come out the other side. This music comes out the other side. And you are the author of those notes because you're breathing into an instrument. And that's the same picture I want you to have when you think about the inspiration of the scriptures. Because all of it, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So all that's given from him, he is the author of the scriptures because he's the one who breathed them out. Okay, Just like a, a flute or a trumpet or a trombone. They're simply instruments. You may use those instruments to make this beautiful music, maybe not so beautiful sometimes, but you make this music, but you are the author of this music. And so when we think about Scripture, all Scripture now, we think about it being inspired by God. And when you think inspired, think God breathe. So when we think about Scriptures, you know, we'll hear sometimes the open air, well, Men wrote the Bible. Well, I don't disagree that men wrote the Bible. They were the ones who physically wrote it down. But they are not the source from which it comes from. They are what it comes through. The scriptures come through men, but they don't come from men. Do you understand the difference? Okay. If I were to use my computer to type up an email to somebody, my keyboard my hard drive, my monitor, all of the components are not the author of my email. It's a device I use to type up my email. But I am the author. The source flows from me. So when we think about Scripture, it does not rely upon man, because we know man is fallible. We know man has been sinful, even though sinful men did not write the Scriptures. Men who have sinned in the past wrote the Scriptures, but not men who were sinful at the time they wrote the Scriptures. But we'll get to the second Peter here in a little bit and talk about what kind of men wrote the scriptures. But it does not depend upon men when we talk about the authority scripture has, the reliability scripture has, it is not dependent upon men. 
just like you, the reliability of an email is not dependent upon the keyboard, the hard drive, the, 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 the quality of the notes is not dependent upon the flute, the trombone, the trumpet. It's dependent upon the person blowing through it. Now, of course, <clears throat> that analogy breaks down if you have a faulty flute or a faulty trumpet or a faulty trombone, but if you're the author of the trumpet, you are the one who's playing the instruments, you're playing, you're going to make a change. You're going to fix it, right? If your guitar is out of tune, what are you going to do? You're going to put it back in tune. If your flute's not working properly, you're either going to fix it or get a new one. If you truly are a flute player, because you want your music to sound right. And so, who is the author, who is the creator of man? God is the creator of man. So can't God use this instrument he has made called man, whether it's Peter, whether it's John, whether it's Paul, whether it's Mark, whether it's Luke, whether it's Moses, whether it's Isaiah or Jeremiah, can't he use that instrument that he has created now, and an instrument that's, that's professing to live for him, can't he use the instrument the way he wants to, to make it say what he wants it to say? Of course he can. Of course he can. And so oftentimes people, when they want to discredit the scriptures or discredit the Bible, They'll point back to men writing it. But they're taking God out of the picture. That's the problem. And since God is all-knowing and God created the people he's using to write it down, he knows them very well, better than anyone else possibly could, what they have written down is exactly what he wanted them to write down. It's God-breathed. It's inspired through him, through these people that he's using. Now let's see what uh, Scripture is good for. This inspiration of God. Well, before we move on, let me just clarify one point here. I think we've talked about this before. Um, when I say the Bible is the Word of God, I'm referring back to inspiration because it breathes coming out of His mouth. But we just, all things we just talked about. Um, but does this mean that everything we see in Scripture is authoritative in the sense that it's a "Thus saith the Lord"? No, it doesn't mean that. Okay. But what it does mean is everything we have in Scripture is what God wants us to have, exactly the way he wants us to have it, okay? But it doesn't mean that when uh, the Scriptures write in Genesis of the serpent speaking in the garden, that that's God speaking through the serpent. It doesn't mean that. So we have to have some clarity on these issues. Uh, when we go to uh, Abraham and the story with his wife Sarah, when he lies about her being his sister, which kind of a half-truth doesn't expose all the truth to these people he's talking to, two separate occasions. Uh, he said, this is my sister. He, he acts like he's saying, she, I'm not married to her, which is a lie. God is not speaking through Abraham to say. It's not what we're saying when we say the scripture is inspired by God. When we go to the account of Job and his friends, we know that a lot of times Calvinists will try to use the things that Job's friends say to approve of original sin and all kinds of false doctrine. We know that Job's friends, what they say is not authoritative for uh, believing doctrine, biblical doctrine, especially when it's contradicting the rest of Scripture. Okay, And so when we see those things, we're not saying that those things are inspired are, um, from God. We, but what we are saying is that what we have in the Scriptures is what God wants us to have. It's inspired in that sense. And so when the people who wrote these things down... They wrote down exactly what God wanted us to have. So the scriptures are inspired. Not everything that, because what people are saying, what quotations we have in scripture, what people have said, God didn't inspire that. He didn't inspire what they said. He inspired the writers to write down what they wrote. That's the difference. Okay? 
And that's why we call it the Word of God. Now, in its future teaching, I'm going to get into the difference between the, the Word of God, Jesus, John 1, 1, and the Word of God, the Scriptures, the Bible. Okay, but we're not going to talk about today. Okay, so let's see what the Scriptures are good for according to verses 16 and 17. And they are profitable. Now, the Greek word there doesn't mean, we think profitable in our day and age, we think, well, I can make a profit on this. You know, I bought it for $5, I can sell it for $10. $5 difference, that's the profit. But that's not what it's saying here. The Greek word there means uh, beneficial and useful. Okay? So the Word of God is beneficial. It's useful. What is it beneficial and useful for? It's useful for doctrine. Okay? Uh, which is, simply means uh, teaching and instruction. Okay, so it's beneficial for that. It's useful for that. It's beneficial and useful for rebuke. Uh, for rebuking someone, reproving somebody when they're doing wrong. And we see that, and we, that's why the reason I read through uh, verses, uh, chapter 4 and verse 4, because we see here, what does he tell him to do? He says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Okay, so we see the, that the scriptures are beneficial, they're useful for doctrine and reproof or rebuke when you use it for those things. But you must be using them for those things. Okay, God expects you to use the scriptures for these things, for doctrine, for teaching instruction, for rebuking, for correction. Okay, uh, and correction there uh, simply means improvement. Uh, if we take the word correction and reprove, they're kind of like the same thing. But in the Greek, it's a little bit different. Uh, reproof there is rebuke in, in the Greek, and correction is simply improvement. Okay, so there may be some improvement. So you're actually learning. A rebuke is giving someone something they know and tell them, listen, why are you doing this? You know this is wrong. That's a rebuke. Improvement is, well, I didn't know that. Now I can make an improvement upon myself. Okay, so there's a difference there. So it's, it's good for doctrine, for rebuke, for giving you ex more knowledge than you didn't have in the first place. We all have a basic knowledge of, God's moral law through our conscience, but there's some things that the conscience does not contain, you know? And, and it's kind of up for debate as to what is contained in your conscience. I think it's just basic morality. Uh, maybe simply just the Ten Commandments, or at least nine of them anyway. Uh, that, that's what's maybe contained in your conscience. But are things like uh, men should have short hair and women should have long hair, is that contained in the conscience? Probably not. Okay, so these are just, that's something to think about. Uh, but as we learn more things, we gain our knowledge, we gain in our accountability. We are gaining our responsibility. We are gaining what we're, we're required by God to obey. And that's why we're learning, we're correcting ourselves, we're making improvements. Uh, I, I think of Apollos, who was shown a more excellent way from the scriptures. He was shown a more excellent way. Now, it doesn't mean he was in sin before that, because he had a lack of knowledge, but he was shown a more excellent way okay um and then we see here it's uh profitable for instruction in righteousness for upbringing for training you know i'm uh, upbringing and training my children in the scriptures it's the scriptures are profitable for that i'm teaching them what the bible says so they can walk in righteousness instead of unrighteousness and that goes to point out this that if you're not reading the scriptures you're not going to be trained in righteousness if you're not reading the scriptures often, every day, multiple times daily, you're not going to be trained in righteous. You're not going to be rebuked when you need to from God unless someone else comes along and rebukes you for it. You're not going to be uh, taught sound doctrine because, let's face it, 
we, as we saw here in chapter 4, there will come a time when itching ear teachers will come. That time's already here. It's all around us. But if you are in the Word of God, you are going to be deceived. And so if you're not in the Word of God, you're not going to see sound doctrine. Uh, you're not going to uh, see improvement for yourself. You need to get in the Word of God so these things can happen in your life. And as these things are happening in your life because you're getting in the Word of God, you can also bring them into other people's lives as you spread the Word of God yourself. We see in verse 17 it says that the man of God, notice the man of God here, not the man of sin or the man of the devil, this scriptures is made for the man of God. The, the this, this man, person who's not a man of God, they're, they're not going to read the scriptures. I know when I tried to, I couldn't understand it. Okay, so the man of God, this is for the man of God, that he may be complete. Uh, and the Greek word there means well-fitted or capable. Okay, well-fitted or capable, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what you need for, for life and godliness, what you need for, I mean, I mean and verse 16 kind of covers every facet of life here. When it talks about doctrine and rebuking and, and improvement, correction, instruction and righteousness, it's, it's encompassing all those things. And then he says that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then he goes on to the work that Timothy should be engaging in, that he's equipped by the scriptures for. I charge you, therefore, in light of what he just said in verse 17 and 16, I charge you, therefore, Timothy, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead as appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. So once you know verses 16 and 17, the, salute, the uh, next step is verse 2. Preach the word. That's one of the whole points of this. Not just to keep to yourself, but to give those. I mean, if we really believe this is the Word of God, if we really believe these are the holy scriptures that Paul writes about, should we be keeping them to ourselves? Ourselves? Shouldn't we be giving it away to others? Even if it's in small forms, like a little gospel track? Here you go. Or maybe it's through your mouth, saying something to somebody. Even something like just walking by and saying, you need to trust Jesus. Have you trusted Jesus today? Start to have a conversation, because if we really believe this is the Word of God... It should have that kind of importance to us. It should cause us to preach the word, not just when it's in season, not just when you have an easy opportunity, but when you don't have an opportunity, out of season. When you have to make the opportunity for yourself, you should preach the word. And this is how you should preach the word. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. That's how you should do it. And when you do that, guess what? You're going to fight against what happens in verse 3 and verse 4. You're going to, as you learn the word for yourself, you understand it, you're going to fight against verses 3 and 4 happening. Not only in your life, but in the life of others. You'll forbid yourself from becoming an itching ear listener. Yeah, just tickle my ear. Tell me what I want to hear. No, you'll want to be rebuked when you're wrong. You'll want an improvement, and you want to have improvement in your life because you know you don't have all knowledge yet. And you want to learn more. You'll be teachable in that sense. And so it will stop the itching ear uh, thing from happening. It will stop you from having poison ivy ears. Okay? That's what it will stop you from having. But guess what? If you don't get in the poison ivy in the first place, you won't get the poison ivy ears, will you? So you stay in the pure pasture of God's word, not go off into the fringes, off the narrow path, into the broad path where all the thorns and thistles and poison ivy is, you won't get the itching ears, will you? Yeah, so you need to stay in the word of God. So you won't get off track. 
So if you do, you'll get rebuked for it. You'll know better. So we see from this, this passage right here in 2 Timothy, we see that the Apostle Paul says in verse 10 that you followed my doctrine. He says you've known the Holy Scriptures. You've learned a lot of these things from me in verse 14. And he talks about the Scriptures being breathed out by God. And that is why. I mean, if it's just the word of man, would it really be profitable for all these things? Would it really be useful and beneficial for all these things if it's really just the word of man? Surely not. Surely not. Let me just, uh, before we go to some other scriptures here, let me give you a, a hermeneutic or a uh, apologetic that uh, John Wesley used. Okay? Now, if you don't know who John Wesley is, this is a quick history lesson. John Wesley was a, a preacher in the 1700s in England. Okay? Uh, he's basically one of the, the founders, I guess you could say, of Methodism. Okay? Uh, he didn't attempt to find a new church. Is that the churches at the point in time, the Church of England, which we call the England Church of these days, these days or Episcopal Church, uh, they wanted nothing to do with him. So he went to the, the, the fields and preached, went to the streets and preached, and many people got saved through him, his ministry. Okay, uh, But this is an apologetic he uses to prove that the Bible is inspired of God. Okay, He says this, The Bible must be the invention either of good men and angels, bad men and devils, or of God. Okay? He says, point one, it couldn't be the invention of good men and angels, for they neither would nor could make a book and tell lies all the time that they were writing it and, and then saying, thus saith the Lord, 3,000 times in the scriptures, when it was actually their invention. So good men and angels couldn't be the ones who are the source of the scriptures because if they were, they'd be lying all the time, which would make them not angels and not good men. Okay. Uh, point two, it could not be the invention of bad men or devils, for they could not, would not, make a book promoting all righteousness, forbidding all sin, and that condemns their own soul to hell for all eternity. So with these two things in mind, it could only be the invention of God himself. A God who is triune in nature, a God who hates sin and sends unrepentant sinners to hell for all eternity. It's very simple, Herman, a very simple apologetic, but it's very powerful, I think. He's basically covered all the categories of who could have been the inventor, who could have been the inspiration behind the scriptures, and he defeats them just like that. Let's, uh, let's uh, talk about the inspiration some more. We know that the, I told you the word inspiration means God breathed. Let's go back to some other things that God, God's breath or God's word did in Je- Genesis chapter 1. We see in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 3, it says, uh, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. So God's word is alive. It's it's powerful. It does stuff. He said, let there be light. There was no light. Let there be light, and there was light. Um, verse 6. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Now, this firmament is not there anymore, because it's dividing the waters from the waters. So there was some kind of, we think, water canopy around the earth. That's no longer there. Probably busted up in Noah's flood. But the point I'm making here is that he said it, and what happened? It happened. It happened. Uh, verse 9. 
Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together. So it's the waters under the heavens now. Be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. So he spoke again and it happened. God's words, God's breath, God's spirit is alive and it causes things to happen. We see in verse 11. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herbs that yield seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. Wouldn't it be great to be able to say, uh, apple tree, uh, blueberry bush, you know, thousands of them, uh, <laughs> grape, grapevine, you know, pear tree, fig tree. Wouldn't it be great to be able to say that and have to wait around all, well, make sure I can put some neem oil on it, got to make sure I take care of it and, and trim it up. Just come out of the ground. You know, grass, same thing. You know, I got to, oh, I dug a set the tank, got to dig a set the tank and put the lines in and now we got to have, wait for the grass to grow. It's going to be a little danger there for a while because on the hillside, no, grass. And it comes up. Wouldn't it be great for that to happen? But that's not what happens with it. But that happens with God. He says it and it happens. Verse 14, Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth, and it was so. You know, we've, we've, I think we've all studied a little bit about astronomy and to see how magnificent, how huge, how powerful those little lights we see, those little pin lights we see in the sky at night, how powerful they are. You know, if we don't notice them, we think it's just a little pin light out there. Ding, ding, ding. It's these huge, ginormous things in the sky, and God spoke and they came into existence. Just like that. So God's word has power. He speaks and things happen. Verse 20. Then God let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth, across the heavens, across the face of the firmament of the heavens. It'd be great to say, uh, you know, Purple Martins, come. You know, kill all these mosquitoes around here. You know, it'd be great to say that. It'd be great to say, okay, pterodactyl appear in the sky so I can see you for once, you know, with my own eyes. It'd be great to be able to say those things. It'd be great to say, okay, let's put a pond over there and let's put lots of tilapia in there. It'd be great to say stuff like that. But we don't have that kind of power. But God does. And not only a little pond, all the fish of all the seas in the world. Same with the birds of the air. And then we see in verse 26, or verse 24, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creatures according to his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beasts of the earth, each according to his kind. And it was so. It would be great to have a, you know, a thousand cattle on a hill. You know, lots of, lots of good, fresh, raw milk and you know, and e- good eggs and good meat, all those things. It'd be great to have those things, but we can't do that. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over the, all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And it happened. And so God is speaking, and things are happening. And then verse 29, the final time we see in verse, chapter 1, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed to you. It shall be food for you. Also to every uh, beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. So God speaks, and all the animals ate vegetables. They all ate grass. They didn't eat each other yet. That happened after the flood. People weren't eating them yet. They were eating herbs and seeds. Those are the things they ate at first. And so, yeah, no, they would, no, it doesn't say for smoking. It says for eating. 
Okay? So people try to use this, this verse to say, well, I can smoke marijuana if I want to. It doesn't say for smoking there. It says for eating. And it always gets them. If you just ask them, well, well why don't you smoke a different plant? Whatever, you can use poison ivy, you can use some other plant if you want to, okay? Or you can use poison oak if you want to, okay? Uh, you can ask them, why aren't you smoking this plant? Well, I don't get high on that. Well, aha, that's the reason why you smoke marijuana, not because God gave it to you to smoke, because you want to get high. That's really all there is to it, and they're engaging in sorcery in the process. So we see these things, and then in Genesis uh, 2-7, um, it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So God's breath made Adam alive. Took him just from just some dirt and some matter and made him a living creature, a living being, from his breath. And so when we think about the Word of God, the, the inspiration of Scripture, the Holy Scriptures, they're inspired by God. They have God's breath. They have God's power behind them. They have life behind them. They're not just words on a page. You know, we, we think about other books, there's words on the page. This comes alive. I'll read it every day. I've read the same scriptures you know, over and over and over again, and it just comes alive to me. That's the way it's supposed to be. And that's exactly what Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says. Another good scripture you could memorize. Of course, the whole Bible is good to memorize, but Hebrews 4.12 this really kind of puts what I'm trying to communicate to you into perfect words. It says, For the word of God is a is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing, I'm sorry, uh, piercing even to the vision of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. No other book in the world can say this about itself. No other book in the world has God's breath, God's life, God's power behind it. No other book in the world is inspired by God, like the Bible is. Nothing. No one can say that. Other books try to claim that, but no other book can say that truly about itself. Ephesians 6, talking about the armor of God. And this is the, in the armor of God, we see the only offensive weapon here. In all this armor, we have the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the, the belt of truth, the gospels of peace, shoes, okay? And then we have the sword of the spirit, which is an offensive weapon, okay? It's the word of God. And we know, we just read in Hebrews 4, that it, it pierces the heart it, to the point, it's a double-edged sword, dividing, uh, soul, uh, what did it say again? Soul and soul and spirit, and bones and marrow. Yeah, that's a sharp sword. Okay, so it's the only offensive weapon we have in our arsenal, and um, so we see the Bible. The Bible is alive. It's active. It's good for all these things, um, and it's good for. We see. We, we said we we said it was good for rebuke, reproof, and one example we have of that is in Matthew chapter four where Jesus is being tempted by Satan. Now, Satan tries to wield the sword of the Spirit, but was he really wielding the sword of the Spirit? No. He was wielding the dagger of deception. That's what he was wielding. 
But then Jesus wielded the sword of the Spirit back at him, and who won the who won the fight? The one who fled was the one who lost. The one who stood his ground is the one who won. So Jesus won the battle. And so when you when you are dealing with temptation, whether it's from your memory, uh, from your from your you know from your flesh, your memory, or through your eyes and your ears, these temptations are coming to you through the world around you, people around you, or through a, some kind of demonic force tempting you. You need to realize the word of God is your weapon. To fight them off. You need to picture it like that. That it's a weapon for you to fight off those things. And that when you, when you see those things coming, you need to quote scripture. That's why you need to have scripture in your heart and your mind so you can have it readily available. I mean, if someone at any point in time could end up in a fight with their enemy, but their sword's off in their, their barn somewhere, they're, they're, they're gonna have a problem. They're gonna have a problem. But they always have it on their sheet. They always have it sharpened. It's not a dull blade, it's a double-edged sword, and it's sharpened at all times. And they have it ready to go. It's not going to be stuck in there trying to... They have it ready to go and pull it out. Then they're ready to fight at all times. Yes, and you're training. We've trained with it. Very good. You've trained with it. You know how to wield it properly. You're not going to... If you're just training with your friend, you're not going to stab him with it. But if the enemy comes, you're ready to stab if you have to. But if you're not ready, if it isn't sharpened, if you don't have it on you at all times, it means you have to have it in here and in here. Then you could be in a dangerous position because your your adversary, the lion, is prowling around looking to devour you, looking to devour you. And so you got to be ready at all times. You got to have your your only offensive weapon you have in your arsenal. You have to have it ready at all times. That shield's only going to work for a certain period of time. It's only going to I mean you can only shield off so many things, and they're going to keep on coming closer and closer, and they're finally going to kill you. But if you have that sword ready, you can fight them off. That's what the Word of God is meant for. And we see that example from the Lord Jesus in Matthew 4. You know, the devil is quoting scriptures to him and twisting them. But as, you, as we look back at, it, at 2 Timothy, as you're in the Word of God, it's profitable for doctrine. It's profitable for, uh, for improvement in your life. It's profitable for rebuke in your life. It's profitable for training in righteousness. And as you're in the Word of God yourself, these twistings... They will not phase you. You'll be able to, I know that's a twister. I know you just twisted God's word. And you'll be able to figure it out and point it out, and you'll be able to move on and say, nope, this is what the word of God really says. Don't wield the dagger of deception towards me. Let's go to Second Peter, chapter 1. And as we look at Second Peter, we're going to see, see more about who wrote the scriptures. We see what the scriptures has claimed to be. We're going to see more about what the scriptures are, are okay, and uh, who wrote them in, in 2 Peter chapter 1. And verse 20 and 21 are the, are the big verses I want to focus on, but I want to start in verse 16 here. And, and what we see here is Peter is talking about the Mount of Transfiguration, which is found in at the, ver- the last verse of Matthew 16 and then all the way through the ninth verse of Matthew 17, you see the Mount of Transfiguration. And um, let's just read, with that in mind, let's start reading in verse 16. For we do not follow cunningly devised fables. You hear that? The Word of God, the Scripture, the doctrine that Peter teaches is not cunningly devised fables. Okay? And he goes on to prove what he means by that. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ... But were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So they weren't cunningly devising fables. Well, let's see, what, what kind of story could we make up and 
get a bunch of, you know, millions and billions of people to believe it and follow it for all these 2,000 years, what can we make up? No, he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty on that mount of transfiguration. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is what God said to him on the mount. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. So they heard the words from Jesus, they heard the things he said, and they had it confirmed through what they saw on the holy mountain. They were eyewitnesses of these things. These weren't fables they devised by their own imaginations. They saw these things for themselves and heard these things for themselves. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed. Because it's confirmed, because they're eyewitnesses and not devised fables, you would do well to heed it as a light that shines in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Let's stop there. The word interpretation there is not a very good uh, word, I think, for this. Okay, uh, Interpretation. We think interpretation, we think, well, here's the word of God. I interpret this way. You interpret that way. It's how you understand things. But the Greek word there means origin or loosening. Okay? So no prophecy of Scripture is of any private origin. Because who is the origin of Scripture? We just saw it in 2 Timothy. The origin of Scripture is God. It's not some other person, these individuals who are writing it, but it's God. Okay? So we're not just talking about interpretation here. We're talking about origin. The origin of the Scriptures is not private. For prophecy never came by the will of man. Did you hear that? They'll argue, they'll say, well, it's, it, men wrote it down. It's never from the will of man. That's not the origin of it. But holy men of God, what kind of men of God? Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the origin of Scripture we see is inspired by God. God breathed, we see right here. Uh, there's no private origin of the Scriptures. It never comes by the will of man, but by the will of God, because men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So, we, you know, we believe in the doctrine of free will. But when it comes to Scripture, there is absolutely no free will involved at all, because God is the source of this. And God is ensuring that it's not going to get messed up. He is the foundation of Scripture, not man. If man's a foundation, it's going to crumble beneath us. I just throw this in the garbage of man's origin of Scripture. It's not worth any. It's just like any other book in the world. But we know from the book itself what it claims about itself. That is not true. Men can claim that all they want, but that's not what this claims about itself. That's not what this claims about itself. So prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God. So it's not just any kind of man of God. You know, they try to act like, people try to act like, well, they could have just put whatever they want in there. Well, what would that kind of man would that make them? It'd make them sinful men, not holy men. Because holy men of God follow God's will. They're moved by the Holy Spirit. They write down what they're told to write down. That's all there is to it. And we even know what Jesus said to them. And in, in John, he said that when the Holy Spirit comes, talking to the apostle, he will do what? He will bring forth to your members everything I said to you. That's what it said. And so the, the people who wrote down the scriptures were eyewitnesses. Okay? Um, what Peter 
claims to be an eyewitness. Now, there's some people in Scripture who are writing down eyewitness accounts. Okay, I, I would even say that most of Paul's epistles were not written down by him. Okay, now we do know in Second Thessalonians, he says that he wrote at least every salutation of his epistles. Second uh, Thessalonians, uh, chapter three and verse sixteen. It says, um, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which they sign in every epistle, so I write. Okay? But we do know in Romans, as I research, I'm, I'm just, you know, Romans, it says that a guy named Tertius wrote it at the end of Romans here, Romans 16. It says in verse uh, 22, of Romans 16. It says, uh, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Okay? So when I say that the eyewitnesses uh, wrote the epistle, I'm not necessarily saying that they're the ones who took a, a pen in their hand and wrote down every word. But they are the they are the ones who are the source of the words coming down on the page. Okay? But, uh, we do I do believe that Paul wrote Galatians. If we turn to the end of Galatians... It says um, in verse uh, chapter six and verse eleven, and uh, I guess I guess he's trying to show his care for the Galatian church. He says, "See with what large letters I have written to you, with my own hand." Okay, so it seems to me when he's saying that in Galatians, he's trying to make this like an exception to the rule here, and we know that he wrote at least every salutation to the epistles he wrote, but he didn't write Romans. And the rest of them don't really say, particularly. But um, they all have the same kind of flow of thinking and the same kind of words being used. And, and we do know that in all of his epistles, except for maybe Hebrews, he puts at the front of it that he's Paul writing this. Okay. Um, Matthew doesn't say in his epistle whether he wrote or not, but the, the oldest copies we have of Matthew say from uh, according to Matthew on them. Okay. Uh, Mark does not say he wrote it in Mark, but it says the oldest ones we have, oldest copies we have say according to Mark on it. Uh, same with Luke, does not say Luke in it anywhere, but it says according to Luke on the oldest copies of it. Now, John, we do know at the end of John's epistle in John chapter 20, uh, 21, I'm sorry, <clears throat> we see that it's, uh, you know, Peter's talking to Jesus about John, what's going to happen to him, what will become of him. And, uh, and it says in, in verse 22, Jesus said to him, If I will that he will, he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then the saying went out among the brethren that this disciple, speaking of John, if you read through the whole kind you see what he's talking about, John, the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remains till I come, what is that to you? And verse 24 said, This is the disciple who testifies of these things and who wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And so we know that John uh, confirms that he wrote John, and you know Peter confirms he wrote Peter, first, second Peter, um, and then we see uh, Jude confirmed he wrote Jude. James said and James that he wrote that. In Revelation, John said he wrote Revelation. Now, first, second, and third John, it doesn't say. Uh, it does say in second and third John the elder, which would make sense because at that point in time, all the other apostles are dead, and so he would be the elder. He'd be the only one left from the original group of elders that Jesus appointed. And so these are eyewitnesses who wrote these things.
Uh, we saw that in Second Peter. We see uh, in First John one. Let's turn there for a minute and see what John said himself about his experience with Jesus. First John chapter one and verse one. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. Which we have looked upon, looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, speaking of Jesus, that life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so these, these eyewitnesses, are the ones who are claiming to write these things. Uh, Luke even says that he looked into these things very diligently, so he's going to eyewitness accounts. Um, and most scholars would say that Mark is writing down Peter's account of things. Okay, Whereas Luke, he has he probably has lots of sources when he's, he's looking into it diligently, he says, uh, going to probably many of the apostles concerning these things. And so we, we see that from, from the scripture itself, what it declares about itself is that it, it's God-breathed, it's written by holy men of old, but it was not brought about by the will of man, but by the will of God as men, holy men, were moved along by the, by the Holy Spirit, and that God's word, God's breath, has power, it's living, it's active. This is like no other book in the world. Therefore, it should be treated that way. It shouldn't be sitting on a shelf collecting dust. It should be picked up every single day. As Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, men cannot live on bread alone, but everywhere that comes from the mouth of God. Does this come from the mouth of God? Well, you should be feeding upon it then. Every day. Would you, would you forbid yourself from eating once, uh, twice a week? Is that what you do? You'd eat twice a week? No. So you shouldn't be reading the Bible twice a week. If you ate physically twice a week, your body would wither away eventually. You'd be bones and skin. And eventually you'd probably die. So what does your spiritual man look like today? Is it strong? Is it powerful? Is it buff? Is it trained? Is it ready for the fight? For the long haul? Not just a little sprint now. We're talking about a marathon. Is it ready for that? Are you building your inner man up every day and feeding it the pure milk of the word of God? Or are you just putting it aside and I'll get to that later. You wouldn't do that with breakfast, would you? You wouldn't do that with lunch, would you? You wouldn't do that with dinner, would you? Yeah, you wouldn't do that. So don't do that with God's precious word. His, his, his words to you. That you need to be reading every day and be in the battle. Because whether you believe it or not, you are in the battle for your soul. Even if you are a Christian, you are in a battle for your soul. And the devil would love to drag you down, destroy your testimony... And have you come to hell with him as a trophy of his power over you. He'd love that. So, this is, this is what I have for you for the first teaching on the subject. In, in future teaching on this, probably two or three more at least, uh, we're gonna look at the reliability of God's word. We'll look at scientific facts found in God's word that were known in God's word long before people knew it. Uh, we'll look at, um, some apologetics concerning God's word. Uh, we'll look at uh, 
the difference between the Logos, Jesus, and and the Word of God. Um, we'll look at some more, maybe if it's how, how reliable it is, how much, how many manuscript evidence we have in comparison to other documents from antiquity. Uh, we're going to look at a lot of these things over the next uh, you know few weeks or so. So that, that's it. That's all I have for you today. But let's open it up for discussion here and see if anyone has any questions. And remember, I'm going to be teaching on these other parts of the Word of God, so let's let's try to frame our questions to be what we talked about today, because your your other questions you may have may get answered in the next few weeks. Okay, so let's try to stay on top of what we talked about today. Brother Tracy. Yeah, um, the part where it says um, uh, Scripture is not a private interpretation, mm-hmm. you, we say it's improper to use that in the way we normally say inter- interpretation. That, that's completely improper to use it that way? Well, I, I would agree that there's only one interpretation, truly, of Scripture. Right. Obviously. I mean, God, God's trying to communicate something to us, and we, we can't have two people saying, well, this, means, this Scripture means this, and the other guy says something completely opposite. So that, that can't be true. And, of course, I believe God leads us in our interpretation of Scripture. It must be led by the Holy Spirit so he can speak to us as the author of Scripture what he's trying to communicate to us. Right. But that's not what that Scripture is saying. That scripture is talking about the origin of it. You know, it's not cunningly devised fables. The origin of prophecy is not from people, from man. It's from God. And it was through holy men, and they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, I agree, there is no private interpretation in what you're saying. But it's not what the Greek word means. Okay? Our normal use of interpretation, not what it means. And uh, I, I, I wouldn't particularly use that scripture to... to to bolster that, I would just use logic and reason. I and mean, if God is holy and God is perfect in knowledge, and He's trying to communicate something. There's, he can't be self-contradictory. So I guess maybe a stronger scripture to use would be "We're all taught by the Holy Spirit." Mm-hmm. And First you know, John two twenty seven. Right. Then we can use logic to say if we're all taught by the same teacher, mm-hmm. we all come to the same conclusion. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. But if the Holy Spirit is a teacher, He's not going to teach you something and me something the opposite of that. Right. That wouldn't make it. One of us is not hearing from God, right? Yeah, that's so that what I have to be say. A stronger scripture than for that. Yeah, First John two twenty seven. I think would be good. Yeah, okay. uh, but I, I think just pure reason with that situation, because God, if God is the author and founder of logic, he, it's a reflection of His mind, and we know one of the laws of logic is the law of non contradiction. That we can't have two things that are opposite being right in the same situation, in the same case. You know, two plus two can equal four and five. We know that can't be true. And so, if that's true about God, we have to come away with, well, if we have disagreement about a scripture, one of us has to be wrong. Or both of us are wrong. They were both wrong, and someone else is right. Uh, but, I, I mean, I don't think that scripture is trying to say that, though. Okay. Yeah. But, Sean? Another kind of apologetic you could use when people say, uh, I don't know if you use it or not, use it for people that want to say the scriptures are only written by men, and it don't mean that only, origin of men, right. what they mean when they say it. Right. They'll say, therefore, it's faulty or not trustworthy. You can pull it back on them because they're trusting history books, the same writings. They're written by men according right. to their own view. So how do they choose who they trust? Right. They're basically undermining language and and anything. Yeah. Men, period. They're yeah. Undermining themselves. Right. Yeah. And some of the uh, the more apologetic campuses that I preached on, like UNC Chapel Hill, NC State, don't really seem to have very many of those around here. Unfortunately, I don't know what it is. Um, but uh, that would come up a lot, and I would say so. So you you actually pay thousands of dollars a year to come here and read books written by men so you can get a degree and get a job. And that job is going to em- employ these 
truths you learn from these books that are written by men, and it may even people's lives may be at risk when you're engaging. Like doctors, I mean lawyers, understanding these things, these books written by men and believing they're true could be uh, someone's life going, someone going to jail, or someone not going to jail. Someone dying on the operating table, someone not dying on the operating table. So they're yeah these. People, they're, they're hypocrites because what they're doing, they're simply picking and choosing what books they want to follow and what books they don't want to follow. Of course, we know the Bible, the source of the Bible is, is God. And uh, if, if they'll pay to read books written by men, which we know the source is men, how much more should they treasure God's holy word? Written for their, for their good. You know, for the good of those around them. Second Timothy three sixteen. Could the argument be made that this is really talking, even though it can follow because we are under elders and we do mimic not only you guys, obviously Christ first, but you guys also, mm-hmm. that this is only going towards an elder? That this because he's talking to an elder, telling him what he has to do, and would would the rest of the church in that time have had the scriptures themselves personally? I don't know that. I'm just asking. Are you referring to like him saying all scriptures given basically? Would everyone else have had scriptures of their own at that time? I'm wondering because I don't, I don't think they were. Obviously, this letter was on the first letter, so it wouldn't have been a mass produced of some sort already mm-hmm. at that time. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you can say that this is only these are only things that elders should be doing uh, as far as preaching the word is concerned, because we know from other scriptures the Bible tells us to be witnesses, and and we know the Great Commission. Unless we're going to say the Great Commission is only for the apostles now, right. yeah. So <clears throat> I, I think that every Every Christian is re, uh, required to share the word of God that they know. You only share what you know, what you know with others. And for some it may be uh, less than others, but you're required. If, if this is really the word of God, should you be holding it to yourself? Yeah, and so, but when you are preaching the word of God, these, all these things will be in practice. Convincing people, rebuking people, exhorting people, and doing it with long-suffering and teaching. Yeah, so uh, this I don't think this is referring to his job in the church because it says right I, I didn't read verse five it says do the work of an evangelist so he's he's out evangelizing okay so I didn't read verse five when I read it the first time but he's doing the work of an evangelist here I, I don't think he's really referring to here uh, doctrinal thing within the church he's referring to what he's doing in the world yeah. But these things will be involved when you're out there. You'll be convi- trying to convince people or reasoning people. You see the Apostle Paul doing this over and over again in the book of Acts. You'll be rebuking people at times, exhorting people as a strong admonition to them. Uh, and then you're doing this with long-suffering and teaching. Yeah. But I, I, I think uh, all the churches at that point in time, of course, they didn't have all the New Testament scriptures. You know, they didn't have all of that. But the good news, they had the apostles in the flesh. So they didn't, I mean, we don't have the apostles in the flesh. So we, we need this conglomerate of all their writings to help us have all the knowledge we need. But when you have the apostle Paul right there, he's not writing down everything he's saying to you. You can ask him a question and he'll answer it right there in the spot. Yeah, so they had a lot of oral teaching that we don't have from them. And so they, they, they had the benefit of that. And so I, I don't know who's in a better spot. Uh, whether they were in a better spot. I mean, imagine you can ask the apostle Paul a question anytime you want. I mean, we, we talk about some other people we can answer, ask questions to, and it's great to get answers from them, you know, people you look up to in the faith, but I should be able to ask the Apostle Paul or Peter or John a question. Yeah, I mean, John, John was a beloved apostle. You know, he laid his head on Jesus' 
breast at the table. You know, he called himself the, the apostle Jesus loved, and had this revelation he had, and all the things he went through. You imagine talking to a guy who got dipped into a, a pot of boiling hot oil and coming back up on skates and being able to talk to him. That's pretty amazing. And so I don't, I don't know who was in a better place, us or them, as far as the, the amount of things we could have. Uh, obviously, they, I think they were going through a lot more than we're going through. Um, so they may have needed it more, but... I'm also going to point out, this is kind of off-topic. Okay. First Timothy 3, 10 through, uh, through 13. Uh-huh. Kind of proves the fact that Paul, especially verse 11, talking about how the Lord delivered him out of all these sufferings. Right. People always try to say, you know, at end times, why do you have to suffer? God's not going to let us suffer. And sure. Out, the Lord delivering doesn't mean you come out unhurt. Right. Doesn't mean you come out. Well, I mean, he, he endured. I mean, verse 12 kind of squashes that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Well, maybe. You know what the thing is, though, in verse 12, I just I just picked this up that a lot of people who believe in the preacher rapture, they're, they're usually antinomian Baptists. So they don't, they're not designed to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. So that, I mean, that's why they're not going to suffer persecution. So just a thought there. Most of them I've, I've met, they're not designed to live godly in Christ Jesus. Alright. And one thing, going back to the letters you were referring to before, these letters and epistles are being passed around, if I understand right, all the churches in Asia are getting these different letters and being copied and no, they didn't. It was have to be copied. Yeah. Now, there's even letters we don't have uh, access to. First uh, Corinthians talks about a letter before that one that was written. Okay, and then in Colossians uh, chapter four and verse sixteen, it says, "Now, when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans." And that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So we don't have that epistle. No, we don't have that epistle. And um, I don't know if, if, I mean, eventually all the churches like we have today have all the epistles. I'm not sure if it was commanded, like it is right there in Colossians, to be passed around to every single church. Uh, but thank God eventually we had all of them together, which gives us a, a better understanding of what everybody's saying. Another kind of argument surrounding that first Timothy 3, uh, I've wondered about this. Is he, is it, since he was writing this letter and writing the First Timothy three sixteen at that time, he made it a number time. Uh, would he have only been really referring to the Old Testament? No, I don't think so. Maybe the Gospels also. Yeah, I, I think it referred to whatever they had in place at that point in time. Yeah, and and just uh, if you could turn up Second Peter three, uh, he calls Paul's writing scripture. Okay, and we're going to get into uh, maybe next week more about how something is qualified as. Inspired, inspired by God or not, but it says in Second Peter three sixteen, it says, or let's start in verse fifteen, <clears throat> and consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught, unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they also do also the rest of the scriptures. So Peter calls <clears throat> Paul's writing scriptures. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, at that point in time, um, in Second Timothy three sixteen, he would have only been referring to what had been written at that point in time. I mean, John, the Apostle John's Gospel would not have been written yet. The Revelation of John would not have been written yet. Uh, this was, I think, Second Timothy was written later on in Paul's life. 
So I think just about everything else would have been written by then. But, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, the uh, printing press, I believe that was uh, invented around the 1500s. I don't yeah. know the exact date. Yeah, it was much later on. I think one of the first things that was printed was the um, Bible. Uh, the Texas Receptus. Yeah. That was one of the first things that was printed. Hmm. I think that's about when it came out, in the 1500s. Yeah. Uh, the story behind that. Is it Voltaire? No, I, I don't think that's the same story. That's, the same that's a different story. Yeah, that's a different story. Yeah, the story of Voltaire was a French philosopher who was a skeptic and yeah. didn't, he, didn't, he hated God. Yeah. And uh, he said that within 100 years of him dying, that the, uh, the Christianity would disappear. And within 50 years of him dying, within 50 years of him dying, the uh, Geneva Bible Society, they bought his house and bought all his printing press stuff inside of his house, and on his own printing stuff, he printed. they printed up thousands of copies of the Geneva Bible. So, yeah, have you ever seen that quote that the guy had posted in the back of his, yeah. his video one time that said, where God said, or, sorry, where Voltaire quoted saying God is dead or something? Right. Like that, the guy said it? Uh, that that? No, that was a different philosopher. That was, uh, that was Nietzsche, yeah. Okay, fair enough. Still interesting quote. Nietzsche, and then he added below, so God said Nietzsche's dead. Right. Yeah, Nietzsche will live for a long time somewhere. So. Uh, apologetic, uh, let's do the apologetic. Sure. Can you cover that last part again, please? Yeah. Um, let's get my card out here. Okay, so I'll, I'll just cover the whole thing one more time, just to clarify. The Bible must be the invention of either good men and angels, bad men and devils, or of God. It could not be an invention of good men and angels, uh, for they neither would nor could make a book that tells lies all the time that they were writing, and it was saying, thus saith the Lord, over 3,000 times in the scriptures, which would make them liars, because they wouldn't be good men, they wouldn't be angels, they'd be demons or devils. It could not be the invention of bad men and devils, or devils, for they could not or would not make a book point, uh, promoting all righteousness, forbidding all sin, and that condemns their own soul to hell for all eternity. And number three, therefore, it must be the invention of a holy God, who is trying in nature, which is what the Bible says about him, hates sin and sends unrepentant sinners to hell. That's what the Bible says. Can we pass that around, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you can pass it around all you want. Yeah, yeah it's great. I'm interested if somebody might try to use that for another book, so like for like the Quran or something, try to use that quote thing. Well, but. But the Quran and the Book of Mormon promote ungodly things, and, and they have unfulfilled prophecies in them. Uh, so, I mean, we can do internal critiques of other religions and show how they're faulty. Yeah, yeah. You know, we have we have uh, apologetics we use against against Muslims. He has a lot of apologies against Mormons. Yeah. He, he he can talk to you about that. About. But going back to Deuteronomy, how you know if, if a prophet is speaking right. and does not come to pass, not be afraid of him. For what he's saying does not come from me. That's a paraphrase of what God says. In Deuteronomy 18. Yeah. So, of course, all people, can, all people claim that their book is a is from God, but it has to prove itself that. Okay. So, yeah, come we should make a look at that reliability, uniqueness, and all the other things from the Scripture. But no, no other book can say that. Can use that apologetic consistently, like we can. So, okay. Anybody else?